Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today I'll be speaking with Gwen Bartley, the founder and executive director of Amazing Grace Advocacy. Gwen is a mom to five children, three of whom came through foster care adoption and have brain disorders and were exposed to substances in utero. Gwen founded Amazing Grace Advocacy with a vow to help other families navigate the complex systems that serve our children. Two of her children have a dual diagnosis of mental health and intellectual disabilities. They were stuck in limbo between these two systems. In devoting a lot of time to fight for services, Gwen and her staff were able to achieve what was needed for their care and success. Gwen shares her experiences and compassion in achieving peace and quality of life for other families raising complex children. But more than anything else, put God's work first and do what he wants. Then the other things will be yours as well. Matthew 6, verse 33. So I am so thrilled to have with us today Gwen Bartley, who's the founder and executive director of Amazing Grace Advocacy. I met Gwen in 2019. She and I were participants, and actually Gwen was a presenter at the North Carolina Exceptional Children's Assistance Center First Parent Leadership Summit. It was a wonderful weekend, and I was able to talk with Gwen just about her journey and about her advocacy. And also, I participated in a workshop she presented, which I was telling her before uh, we just started recording. She inspired me to really take the steps towards FASD hope and what my husband and I are trying to do with what we consider to be a a ministry and a mission. So Gwen, thank you for being on FASD hope today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, This is, you know, where my heart has led me. Um, It continues to grow year after year, which really solidifies that God's at work here. And and I just do what he calls me to do. (laughs) Absolutely. So can you share a little bit about your journey in building your family and your family's journey in learning about FASD and just the other complex challenges that we know our kids face? Right. So, you know, I think it's most of us want to become parents. It's a very, you know, we grow up thinking about how wonderful it would be to be moms and dads and that sometimes gets interrupted by infertility, by different, you know, things that happen in life. And so many of us look to adoption for a way to become a parent. I was fortunate. I I did have a biological child from my first child, had no complications, you know, enjoyed a a fairly normal pregnancy. Um, But after he was born and we wanted to have more children, it just didn't happen. So by the time he was, my oldest was um, seven years old, we had gone through some infertility treatments and, and explored that avenue. It just, obviously it didn't work. And it also just, it wasn't working emotionally for us as well to continue on that path. So we chose adoption. We worked through a Christian agency, private adoption agency to do a domestic adoption. Um, we did one an infant. And so it was about a year and a half journey of the whole process. And we were delighted to be brought to the hospital prior to our son being born. And we were actually there when he was born and I was robed up and ready and essentially caught him. So we we were really blessed in the fact that from minute one, we were there. Quickly upon his birth, within 20 minutes, I was feeding him his first bottle and in the nursery and everything was just wonderful, right? He started tremoring and really quickly, you know, the team of doctors and nurses were all on it immediately. And, and he was 
withdrawing. And we did not have prior knowledge that there was any substance use or alcohol use during her pregnancy. It kind of came as a little shock. However, I knew in my heart the minute I saw my child that he was my baby and we stuck it through and we were in the NICU for a little while and he recovered and did not seem to have any lingering effects at that time. So, you know, took him home. He developed fairly well as far as hitting the milestones. We did not really start seeing any real issues and he and, and physically developed fine as well. We didn't have any, you know, complications or diagnosis, anything when he was little. When he was in elementary school, you right around like third, fourth grade, we kind of saw this shift where he became really aggressive, you know, getting phone calls from teachers all the time, that type of thing, and really impulsive. But we weren't suspecting that this was connected to his prenatal because number one, no one no professional even brought it up, right? Even though I mentioned, hey, when he was born, you know, he did go through a withdrawal. And the other thing too, that's tough with a lot of us with adopted kids, what those substances are, what those screens come through at birth, we don't get that information. We're not privy to it. So I didn't really know exactly what he had been exposed to until I started doing some digging myself because we did keep a semi-open adoption with his birth parents. And what I did learn was she used alcohol and marijuana throughout the pregnancy. I'll pause there because there came some other factors in this. So right here, we're look, you know, we have an early elementary kiddo that's starting to exhibit issues. So I'll back the story up a little bit more. When that child, and I'm not using names, just for their own identity. When he was three, we decided to adopt again. But this time our hearts really pulled us to foster care. We knew there were so many children in care. I had kind of gotten over the, I have to have a baby itch that we all sometimes can go through. So we, we worked through the um, our local DSS and foster care agency and we got a sibling set. And the complication of this was one of the boy was six months age difference from our child. So I was going to essentially artificial twin. And then our daughter was 18 months younger than the two of them. So I went from, you know, having two kids. Now I'm going to have four kids and three of them are essentially the same age. So they were four and two when we got them. We were able to adopt them fairly quickly. Um, I think we only had to foster them for like six months and then we were able to move forward with the adoption. So kind of a long story of all that, but the bottom line is this, very quickly within weeks of having the kids in our custody, I knew we've got something going on here big time. And so my son's early diagnosis was intellectual disability, failure to thrive, speech and language, you know, the gamut. My daughter, more severe, she had intellectual disability, speech and language, but she also had the facial disformities. So wide set eyes, both of them have like protruding ears, you know, the, it all was there. And also um, she had a lot of eye issues and had ended up having surgeries and hip dysplasias. I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? But what was most disturbing about all this was that we were not really informed and None of the professionals at that time, you know, these, what we're talking about now is commonplace in terms of you can find information. This was back in the early 2000s. People weren't talking about trauma, substance use disorders, fetal alcoholism. None of this was discussed. So I felt like we were really just out on this island of what in the world is going on and why can't we get help? So that'll kind of lead to, I know, like, how did this whole thing started with Amazing Grace? But I think what's really important to paint the picture is that anyone who is early on in this right now, it is awesome that you can find resources and help because when I was going through this, it, there was nothing. You and I adopted around the same time because our son was born in 2002 in the early 2000s. It, what you're saying just totally hits home with me because there was nothing out there, even though it, it you know there was suspected and we had, you know, like you said, so I, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Gwen, because 
we had to dig on our own, you know, and having, you know, what you're doing with Amazing Grace and having FASD Hope, you and I have recognized that going through this journey on our own without anybody telling us about FASD, trauma, anything like that, we are so blessed that now we can share our experiences and our resources with other parents. So if you're in this journey, if you're, if you have littles, and you have either adopted or you've gone through foster care, please know from Gwen and from me that it's always best to rule things out, especially when you start to see things develop. You're sharing your story, Gwen, and I'm just nodding my head in agreement because yes, we we had been through that. One quick question before you continue, because both you and I have been through separate states, but we've been through the 30-hour foster care adoption classes. In my class, and this was in the 2010s, you know, we, we did this about, I believe we took our class about seven, eight years ago. There was no mention of FASD. Was there any in yours? No, absolutely not. And I've been asked about this a lot because people say to me, if you knew what you then, what you knew now, would you still have adopted your children? Absolutely. 100%. And I can tell you, like, I go back to when my son was going through withdrawals, that was terrifying to have a baby all of a sudden just start tremoring, right? They did tell me at that point, you know, that it was some sort of substance Substance, withdrawal. They just couldn't tell me what kind, but I didn't change my mind. I just wish I would have had more resources that I could have, the earlier you can put treatment, intervention, therapies in place, the better the outcomes. And that's going to be, so I'm going to lead into that with part two of this, right? Okay. So now I've got four kids, three of them are all little toddler preschoolers, and they've all got pretty significant behavioral things going on because at this point I'm, I'm suspecting, but I'm thinking this is all behavioral and that I, as a parent, I'm not doing the right things. And not realizing too, like how we felt, how we learned once we received FASD, the diagnosis and the training, when what we thought when our kids were little was behavioral, we were actually symptoms of the brain damage from the exposure of alcohol and the trauma and everything else. Yes. So fast forward, now we're going through school, right? Which adds a whole nother layer of disaster, right? So, because you've got these, all these things going on, we were constantly rotating in between doctors and therapists and specialists. And because not only did we have behavioral things, but we had some obviously developmental things going on. And then we also had some physical health things going on. Okay. So we're going through this whole thing. School is a nightmare for all three of them, all three of them in their own little way. I was constantly in the schools. So I want to fast forward to when it got really bad, when the middle child of this got to be about 10. So around that 2010, that was a rough time period for both of us. um, Things got really, really bad. He was aggressive and violent beyond anything that I thought I could, could even imagine a kid could be possible of doing. Okay. So it was recommended that he go into a facility, a psychiatric residential treatment facility. And again, back then they weren't really looking at trauma. They weren't looking at, okay, his IQ is really low. So are any of these treatments even going to work? But at that time, I am like on autopilot at this point, and I'm just guide me what you, what these professionals want me to do. So he went into several different facilities between 2010 and 2016, he pretty much hit every facility in the state of North Carolina because he would go in, they couldn't handle him, and then they'd want him to go to a different place. And it was just every nine months we were moving him. Meanwhile, my first adopted child is now branching in through middle school and through high school. His aggression's still there, his all of this energy, all of this impulsivity, still very much there. The one thing that we thought was a strength for him, and and I'm going to say all this very carefully because this actually has resulted in something that has changed things in the last year for us. So even since we've had our conference that we spoke, he really was athletic and he really liked football. So we thought, perfect. You can be aggressive. 
you can be hyper, you can be impulsive, and that's okay out on that football field, okay? So that was his niche, and we thought, awesome. Like, at least one of these three kids is going to, like, find their purpose and go with it, okay? So he went in that direction. I'll put that on a shelf for right now. Then my son that was in the facilities, we just continued to try and dig and dig and dig and dig and dig until we found the right fit. We finally did find a right fit and a solution. It was through the Murdoch Development Center here in North Carolina, which is a treatment facility that really focuses on the intellectual disability side of it, but it's okay if you have all these behaviors. And they also work with families that have kids with autism as well, but it is a Medicaid-based thing. So we were fortunate because the two from foster care could continue with Medicaid, you know, obviously because of the foster care, but the other one was a private adoption and therefore there was no Medicaid. So I lived with both of those planes of existence and it's terrible that you can't get help when you don't have Medicaid. So, and I'm condensing so much into a short thing. So I'm just trying to to keep it. But what you're saying, I know is going to resonate with so many listeners who have gone through this, you know, myself included. So you just keep sharing. Okay. <laughs> just cool. keep sharing. We're good. Awesome. We're, we are along for this ride. Awesome. There's one other thing I forgot to mention in here. So meanwhile, while I've got all this going on, when the kids were with us nine months, I want to say, I got pregnant. Okay. So now we have baby little baby daughter in the middle of all this. So I have five kids and we're going through all this. Get to be about 2012 when, you know, we've got a lot going on still with all three kids. My ex-husband, well, my then husband and I, so the, the child, the kid's dad, our marriage fell apart, which happened. It happens. And I can't lay all the blame on him. You know, the raising kids is tough. Raising kids with these kind of disorders is so hard. And so we, we got a divorce. And so now we look back on it. We have a friendship. We realized we went through some really ugly stuff, but it happens. And the blessing that came out of it was that in the midst of all this chaos, I, ironically enough, met somebody and we fell in love and we ended up getting married. So it is possible to have a relationship. It is possible to have a loving, healthy marriage, even in the midst of all this chaos. So if you are, whether you are struggling or you are divorced and you think I, no one will ever want to partner up with me because of all of the the chaos in my life, it is possible. So that's an ounce of hope there. So back to the story of the kids. So now from 2012 on for a little bit, I'm a single mom, which made things even more chaotic. I did get married in 2014. So I had a partner from from 2014 till now. So um, I kind of want to direct each story of kind of where we're at with, with each kiddo and then bring it around to why my my current husband and I um, started Amazing Grace Advocacy. So my oldest adopted child, we thought he was on this path with football. He was so good. And I'm going to have a brag minute here. He was a sophomore, age 15, got promoted to be the quarterback of the varsity team at his high school. So he was that good. So we really encouraged that. We supported him, did everything we could do to, to help camps going college visits, all these things, right? Thinking that we were doing the right thing. Well, he ended up having a concussion at the end of that very tail end of that season. And it kind of shifted things like that little bit of brain injury kicked everything into overdrive. And we started seeing like major aggression, major impulsivity. Yes. And I'm going to stop you right there because our son also had a concussion when he was 17 Yep. When he was 17. And what I've learned about FASD is that the prenatal exposure to alcohol is brain injury. So it's brain injury before birth. 
Now, when you have brain injury on top of it, it magnifies all those symptoms that you saw before. So I, I, I wanted to just say that because we experience the same exact thing as Isn't you. It? Yeah. And, and here's the, the hard part of it. So, you know, we went, the, the, the concussion was pretty significant. So we had to go, it wasn't a stay at home and work through this. We had to go see a concussion specialist. I gave the guy, the doctor, all the prenatal information and said, just so you know, you're aware. And he dismissed it. So months after this concussion, we're still dealing with a really aggressive kid and he's getting in trouble at school. Like, suspended every other month, I swear. And I went back to that doctor and said, you know, hey, can we do anything? What, you know, what, what do you suggest? And he dismissed me. He was like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know of any connection between it. Perhaps it's parenting. You know, he, he pushed it back on me as not being a good parent or something, you know, with discipline and whatnot. So the next fall goes back to football. Um, oh, I will, this, this will be a caveat some parents might. He ended up getting suspended so many times from the public school. I said, you know what? We're going to look elsewhere. This isn't working for us. So we went to um, a private Christian school in our area that they were kind of recruiting him for football anyway. So it was kind of like, I really felt like God was putting us there. I was like, you know what? It's a smaller school. They have more understanding, compassion. And I was able to talk to the coach and the, the administration there about his history and what was going on. And they were so wonderful about saying, we'll watch him, we'll support him, we'll mentor him, we'll make, I mean, it, it really felt good, right? So he wasn't two weeks into football practice and he broke his foot at football practice. And not did, he didn't just break his foot, it like shattered it. So we had to like, go through surgeries, pins, screws, rehab, all these things, right? And one thing that was in the back of my head with all this was remember that he was exposed and don't let him take too much pain medication. Like that was there in my head, okay? So I limited his intake of, you know, <laughs> when, with the surgeries and everything, and I thought we were good. So meanwhile, I'm working, trying to manage all of the other kids going on. And guess what? Some friends he had from the public school football team exposed him to marijuana and said, this will make all that pain in your foot go away so you can play football. And we know that when others, we know that our kids are very susceptible to substance abuse because when others put those ideas into their heads, then their brain just goes to that. It's like, oh, that's going to make every, yes. You know, that's going to make everything okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I'm going to make a really long story short. <laughs> this became the big issue now is it, and it took me a little while to catch on because now these kids aren't smoking marijuana in a way that you would you would smell it or know it. They have these vape things that are odorless. They can do edibles. They can do all these things. So he was full in and it flew under my radar for a little bit. Then I caught on. But by the time I caught on, a little bit too late, a lot of it too late. And he ended up getting essentially kicked out of that private school because of it. Um, I ended up homeschooling him until graduation, and he didn't get to pursue a college football career. That was his goal. And so now, here we are. I have a 19-year-old that has an addiction, and in the past year has had two DWIs that resulted in him wrapping our cars around trees because he was intoxicated with alcohol and marijuana. So we're in the middle of court, we're in the middle of rehab, we're in the middle of substance use treatment disorder, and I can't tell you where this is gonna go. But I say this as a warning to parents, whether wherever you're at age-wise, you have to be 20 times, 100 times, more on top of this than you would with a typical teenager because our kids are susceptible and teenagers will say, 
yeah, I went, you know, when I was 17, 18 years old, I experimented, I had a drink or I had, you know, smoked some weed. Our kids can't, they can't. If they have it once, it's probably, they're going to get hooked. It's because in their- they have literally in their brain and in their body, that addiction has already been triggered before birth. Yes. Yep. And I've actually spoken to um, some really excellent people about this that are in the field of neuroscience and addiction. And, and they all, they're like, yep, there is nothing you could have done other than abstinence from it. Because once they've had it, nine times out of 10, it, you're going to, he's going to battle with addiction. And here's why you and I advocate. And here's why I have so much respect and you inspire me so much. You're going through this and you're sharing your story now during this hard, during this incredibly hard. So if you're listening out there and you're in this hard, please know from Gwen, from me, because we still have plenty of hard too. not, not, you know, not in the magnitude of you, but we could, but it, it, we, we know how easy in a moment that it can go from, okay, dabbling with something to boom on death's door because of being addicted to something. So please know if you're listening to, to Gwen's story, know that your, if you have a child who is born addicted to something or poly substances, alcohol, and you, like Gwen said, you have to be, you have to be so vigilant about their safety and accommodations. And that's key. And that's one of the big reasons why we homeschooled, you know, when our son was about to, you know, enter um, middle school years, because we know, we knew, especially in the district we were at at the time, that there were so many opportunities for him. There, there were going to be so many kids who would offer him things. And we knew that because of his, and it wasn't even diagnosed at the time, but we just knew because of his brain, he would immediately gravitate towards that. Yeah. And if that is the biggest takeaway on the flip side of this, you like that I can look back and say, oh, like I messed up that. And, and I, I say not that I messed up because I, you didn't know. I, and, and you know what? It's, it, it magnifies a systemic problem. You know, Absolutely. specialist didn't tell you, pediatrician, you know, I, same thing with our journey. It wasn't until five years ago when we moved to North Carolina that we finally had a specialist say, yes, I, I, I agree. I believe it's, you know, suspected FASD. Let's start the ball rolling. So, yep. yeah, for all those years that you wanted those answers and you knew, you knew you held him in, in your arms and he was withdrawing, you knew, but yet nobody listened. So that's another takeaway too, is that if you know, and you suspect don't stop until you get a diagnosis. Absolutely. Yep. So one thing I will say about this though. So here's my hope. I always, have to put some hope in it as well as you. Um, He should not have lived through the two accidents. When I tell you he wrapped our cars around trees, he wrapped them around trees. I don't know how he lived and didn't have any injury. Either one, it was like God just held him and protected him. He had some black eyes, that was about it. And I know in my heart and I pray every day God, just let me get through this journey because I know you have a story with this. I know you're going to use him when this is over. And I know that we have to go through all of this junk to get there. But I am clinging to that. And because if God wanted him back, he had two opportunities with those trees and he didn't take him. So there's got to be a purpose here. And so I am just praying to continue with my strength and my love, unconditional love through some really, because I can't tell you how mad I have been. Okay. So I'm not saying, oh, I'm just this patient, wonderful mother that's waiting in the wings for him to, to see the light. Oh no, it's been ugly. You get mad. And especially I know for, for me, Um, sometimes this anger is like, 
I know our son doesn't realize, but like the, the ripple effect it has on the family and not only the family, but everybody else. So, you know, that triggers, you're like, you know, you, it's a frustration too, you know, it's an anger and a frustration that these choices, you know, and, and we know that if their brains were able to make the decision that didn't have the horrible consequences, they would, but because of the alcohol damage because of the substance damage, they're not able to make those choices. They, they, they make their, you know, there's impulsivity, there's distractibility. There's just that whole novel of, you know, Oh, Hey, you know, this looks good or this looks good. So, I mean, it, it, I hear you Gwen, because we, we, I struggle with that too. I And when I feel myself getting angry, I let myself experience it, but then I, move on and I pray and I move on. But yes, like, like you, I'm not that patient little mama saying, Oh, everything's okay. Nope. 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 (laughs) Not at all. Yeah. So I'm so glad you're being so real. Yeah. And, and that's part of, part of what we have to do to be advocates is, is the story, the narrative behind what we do is so important. And so to kind of bring where the other two kids are at up to speed of where everything's at, they are all little young adults now. We've all moved past 18. Um, one of them's, I've got a 20, 19 and a half, and an 18 and a half. So my middle child, the one that went through all of the facilities, he, he struggled a lot. It's been tough. We, um, in North Carolina, we do have waivers, which give additional supports to people with intellectual disabilities. So fortunately, I was able to get the two brother, the sibling set on the waiver. That's been a godsend for help for me. And we were able to move um, our son into what's called an AFL and it's alternative family living. So he's essentially um, renting a room from a caregiver um, and it's going okay. Those behaviors, okay, that, that we kind of got used to the impulsivity, the, um, like, I want it now, I'm just going to go get it. Yes. Like, yes. no. Um, so he may go eat all of the food in their pantry because he's hungry. So I'm not sure if this will last a long time for him to live independently with this family, but our goal is we're kind of trying to phase him in the same way you would with a neurotypical child with, it's time for you to leave and go to whether it's college or on your own, whatever, you need to get a job. Right. You need to, you know, do all these progressive steps, but he just needs to do it slower and he needs more support. So that's why we didn't just go get him an apartment. Our our goals in the next couple of years is to get him a supported living apartment. Interdependence, that interdependence. So he has an, and and we are doing, you know, similar thing with, you know, building the tiny house here out on the farm, you know, that you have that safety net but there is that sense of independence. Yeah. Right. So that's our goal. And it's funny you say building the tiny house on the farm. So our big goal is to actually do the same thing. We're, we're actually have a five-year plan to buy property, build a small home for ourselves and then have pods for, for the kids. And that is a very popular movement in the ID community, you know, for, um, for young adults and, and, and adults that have any type of developmental disability or, or need that, that the tiny house movement is becoming more popular. Yeah. It's, it, we're planning on being a compound with yeah. space for all five of our kids mm-hmm. because even the one that has the substance use disorder, I know he's going to need supports. Like he's going to need somebody to help him be accountable. Yeah. And if he goes out into the great big world all on his own, I don't know. Right. So, but okay, let's, let's talk about some silver linings in this, right? Because some people are like, oh my gosh, they're never going to leave me. Like I'm never going to retire because I'm going to have little adults that need support all the time. There's some truth in that. Okay. But there's also some silver lining. I can tell you, and so this is a positive. I enjoy the heck out of my now young adult kids, all aside from my oldest one giving me a complete run for my money right now, but they do improve. There is maturity and growth that happens and they will always be impulsive. They will always need some extra support, but 
um, we overcame a lot of attachment disorder. We overcame um, trauma triggers that have, you know, where it used to be a huge thing, like a complete meltdown. Now it's just a little of emotions. So there is, there is hope that this gets better. Um, so I just want to say that it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's um, being able to enjoy them as adults. Um, they're funny. They're loving. Um, they want, here's the cool thing. Okay, so I have my oldest child, biological child, who is going, he's 26. And then my youngest daughter, who is biological, is 15. They don't have any neurological um, disorder whatsoever, okay? When they were teenagers and even young adults, they, I'm not as cool. Like they don't really want <laughs> to hang out with me or you know what I mean? They have their friends, their social, all this stuff. Well, my other kids kind of want to be, they like me. <laughs> I'm, their, I'm their support. I'm their, and so it's kind of nice to have like my daughter who's 18. She thinks I am the greatest thing on earth. And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's a little too much because she wants to hang out with me all the time. <laughs> Yeah. And we've had other guests with young adults with FASD. And I, I would include our, ourselves in the cat in this category is that they actually like <laughs> when they're not perseverating on something or, or, you know, when they're not totally just experiencing a meltdown or whatever, they actually enjoy spending time with their parents, which you're a hundred percent right. You do not get that with kids who are typically developing, especially in that age, you know, so that is a huge silver lining. Absolutely. So that's kind of the story. Now I want to kind of give a little information about Amazing Grace. What was like the point for you that made you become this fierce mama advocate for your kids and turning it into Amazing Grace and saying, okay, we're going to advocate for many more for, for the community. So in 2014, my husband, my husband and I had just gotten married, literally, we were on our honeymoon and we got a phone call. Our son at that time was in a facility and there were some issues with Medicaid change. It was a whole thing. We got a call on our honeymoon that we needed to come pick him up because the Medicaid, that facility was no longer going to be covered by the MCO that we were in and they, the contract expired and we needed to come get him. So here we are like married you know, three days and we're bringing him home when we weren't prepared to do that. There was no discharge plan. There was no services in place. It was a nightmare. So we went for about, it took us about nine months to get actually some appropriate services back in place for him. And in that nine month period, we sat down every night at our kitchen table, like, God, what do we do? Like we were out of options and this kid was violent at this point in time. This was like, we had holes in our walls. We had in a, in a ninth month period, we had three DSS reports because he was beating up on the other kids. They were going to school and telling their teachers, my daughter got a black eye from them. You know, I mean, it was the hardest year of, of my life, undoubtedly. And at the end of it, like we, I remember it clear as day. And I know these, these are God moments. My husband and I were like, family has kind of backed off. We couldn't, we weren't even going to church anymore because his behaviors were so severe. Like, I mean, we loved our church. Don't get me wrong. And it's not that people were ugly to us, but it was like causing so much stress to get out of our house. We were like, God, we are at your complete mercy. What do we do? And it, came to us sitting at the kitchen table that we needed to just connect with other families. There's got to be other families out there that are going through this and maybe we'll learn something. So we just put it out there amongst some, you know, we had some loose connections with some other families in the community that had adopted kids or kids with pretty severe um, trauma histories. And we said, you guys want to do a support group? Like and that's what we started doing. We just started meeting. I think it started out with maybe three families and just built. And really quickly, we went from like two or three families getting together once a month to people are calling us. People are 
reaching out. And so then we were like, do we start a nonprofit? What do we do? And our thinking was the direction we wanted to go was we have to have something not only for us, but for the kids, because we knew at that time we could not just, they weren't going to go in the, the pathway of whether it be vocational or college or whatever, like it was way beyond that. We needed way more supports for them. So we, our original mission was to not only support parents, but to provide some sort of um, transition for kids as they get through um, all of their adolescence into adulthood. Like, what are they going to do? And so could we start a business? Could we, what, what are we going to do? So that's where we started. Um, and it really grew. I, within a year, we went from a support group into a nonprofit. So we did it fairly quickly. And fortunately, I had a good friend who was an attorney who helped us with, with that process because it is a process. Um, but starting from that, where we are now. So we are now a really big nonprofit um, in terms of who we um, serve and connect with throughout the state of North Carolina. Um, I have a staff of five care navigators that work directly with families doing case management support. And we are doing some really cool things, which I, I know was, we'll talk a little bit more about details of that, but, but we, we have really um, felt very blessed that we are able to keep this going. And here's another God moment. We started out with no money in this, like $300 or, you know, it, we had to literally like make payments to my attorney friend to like do the paperwork. And then we did a little fundraising, just asking people for donations or, you know, it started out with very small amounts of money and running it out of church buildings, like borrowing space. We now have a, a beautiful office where we meet families, although COVID has made it a little rough, <laughs> but um, I have my staff. We have a really robust, um, well, we were before COVID doing a really great summer program, but we are determined that we are gonna be able to do it again this summer. Um, and we advocate, you know, at the state and federal level, we do a lot in our local community. Um, so it, I would have not ever dreamed that it could have grown to this level. But I think that God is the driver. My, um, my scripture is Matthew 6, 33. And everything that I do, I do it for God. I don't do it for profit. I don't do it for any self gratification. And some of it is really not fun. I will be completely honest with you, but I know that I'm doing what God calls me to do. And it all falls into place. Every time our bank account gets low and I'm thinking, how am I going to pay that rent? How am I going to pay my staff? We get a grant or we get a huge donation. It just, it's God. And I cannot, it's not me. It's not my staff. It's not, we are doing the work that we are called to do. And that, that's, that's what I'm sticking to. Amen. And I just love hearing that. We, we feel the same way about FASD Hope. We are ministering to those families, just like you, you know, on a much, we're on a much smaller scale, but ministering to those families that and providing resources, providing, you know, interviews every week with different people to give hope and, and also to let people know, which I think this is hugely important. You and I are still on this journey and we, this journey doesn't end. So the hard doesn't end, but we want people to know that there can be hope in the hard. There is hope in the hard. And again, I, I just am so inspired and so blessed to know you because when in 2019, when you were talking to me, I was thinking, man, I wished we lived closer to her because <laughs> we totally would have incorporated that. And, and, you know, we would have just totally signed up and, and been, a, been a part of it. So what are some of the resources and services that you provide through Amazing Grace Advocacy? So, you know, we, we had to shift with COVID, but it's actually, we found some really great aspects of doing these virtual things. One of the things that I think all parents raising these kids, getting out of your house, scheduling time, trying to get, like, if you have to have a babysitter or 
you know, one spouse has to stay home because you know you can't both go. Because of doing virtual meetings, we've eliminated that barrier now. So while it's there is some huge value into face-to-face and, and being with other people, which we, we want to get back to having that as well. We're always from here on out going to keep this virtual aspect because we can reach people out of our county, like halfway across North Carolina, out of state where now we can do that and it's so easy. Um, so that, that's been the silver lining of COVID. Um, so a few, our focus for 2021 was to really bring services to families that had barriers. And so we're speaking a lot about the families that have private insurance that just, they can't even enter into the Medicaid world of services. That, that is like our biggest hurdle that we've always run into. So what we figured out was cost sharing. So if we can find a therapist, which we have found a therapist that specializes in complex trauma and attachment, which is very much inclusive to FAS or any kind of you know, children that experienced any kind of um, substance use exposure, we found a therapist who is now become a specialist in just this category. And she was in North Wilkesboro, North Carolina, which is so far away from us. So we started a virtual workshop slash training for parents called Complex Trauma and Attachment. And she is, you know, $150 an hour. And so what parent can afford that? But if we get six parents and we all chip in 20 bucks, guess what? So that's what we're doing. Um, So any parents that are out there we even had a family, we have someone from Vermont, we have, someone even called us from South Korea, they're there like through the military or something like that, but so we have a, um, a three-hour orientation training that parents can go through, we, we're going to offer it, we just had one, but we're going to offer it, and we recorded it, so we're going to offer any um, buddy that wants to jump in on that, you do that first, and then once a month, you get another group, small group session with this trauma specialist and six other parents. And then we're also going to do virtual support groups each month, all kinds of things going on, all virtually. And for 25, we're going to, I think we're going to do $25 a month going forward. You can't beat that. Like the support the, and this training is life-changing in terms of looking through that trauma lens or that lens of the brain disorder of why they traditional therapy doesn't work, why you can't fix it, right? But it gives you strategies on how to actually parent these kids with success. And it's slow but steady progress, but it is possible. So that that's one thing we're super excited about. The other thing that we're doing is we know our kids are really struggling with what are they going to do after high school? They're not fitting into traditional programs. Even the vocational programs are, are a hard fit for our kids. So we are going to be doing, um, we've always had a summer camp that is based around what do you want to do after high school? And it was designed for middle school and high school kids. Um, and it was kind of a fun camp with just some soft skill training in it. Well, we want to take it a step further. So we're going to, we are, we've retweaked the whole program. And we're going to be launching it this spring with an orientation. And then we are really, really hoping to do it in person over the summer with with the kids. It's going to be called, and I just wrote it down, what we came up with this catchy name. And I now I can't remember. I'm totally, it's Job Skills Training. Oh, Job Skills Junction. Nice. Um, training for Success. That is the name. And so it's going to be an eight-week program where for high school students and young adults, so we'll go up to like age 23, that, you know, they need more in-depth training on an exploration about what they want to do when they're done with high school and how to get them to it. So we don't want to just give them some, you know, I'll do this research and here's some training and go on, kind of like what they get offered in school. This is going to be hands-on training, and then we're going to help them make resumes that show that they have these skills and we're going to do all different kinds of it's going to be different exposure to a bunch of different things so that they can have some experience as well so we're excited about that and then the last thing that we're really trying to 
get together in 2021 is a respite program. I think one thing that all of us parents raising these kids need is a break, but here's what, here's the problem. The Medicaid respite programs are not good. And I tried it a couple of times with my son and he ended up picking up more bad habits and being exposed to worse things by being in respite. So we never did it again. You can't rely on family. You have to have somebody highly trained that can keep them safe that can not play into the perseveration of, I wanna play video games all day, or I wanna do this, or you know those things. So what we're working on is working with some local colleges with their students that are in their social work departments and special ed departments to do some interning, to have them provide some respite care. We're also gonna reach out, reach out into the faith-based community um, because here's, here's my thing. And I'm this. This may not be a popular thing, but I'm. I God is speaking to me about this. We all believe in life. We all want to see children be carried to term and live a life. We have a responsibility as Christians to take care of those children that were exposed to things that makes their brain work differently. These kids are hard. These kids are tough. We need our faith-based community to step up. We need everyone who says, yes, I believe in pro-life to step up and say, I am willing to take one of those really tough kids for a couple of days Amen. for an afternoon. Let a, let a couple go have a date. Yes. We need our faith-based brothers and sisters to step up and help. Absolutely. Going forward is to reach into everyone's hearts and say, you know, we need a little help. Yes. So, so that's kind of where we're, we're headed in 2021. We've, uh, we've just got a ton of programs that are always available to families, no matter where they're at, just for information. So, you know, anytime we put things on our Facebook, we have our website, we try to just share any information that we get um, to support other families. So And we'll be sharing not only the website, but we'll also be sharing your social media, you know, um, handles and and whatnot so that people can follow you the way I follow you, because not only, you know, do I check your website, but you, you know, make so many wonderful announcements of things. And it's great. You know, when we met two years ago, we were really focused on advocacy in North Carolina, but since COVID it's really the silver lining is that we've been able to take your ministry, our, our mission, and just make it beyond, you know, when, when I hear that people in other countries are hearing us and, and learning, you know, or, or people that I would never, you know, in States that I never even have traveled to say, thank you. You know, you're teaching us you're doing that too. It's such a blessing that, that we can take this virtually now and reach more people. So I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear that. And um, I, I just love all of this. So I'm, I'm going to be breaking this down in our program notes. But so if people want to contact you or contact, you know, Amazing Grace, they can let you know, you know, if they're interested in a particular program or just about Amazing Grace in general, you are filling such a need, such a service because our son is also on the innovations waiver wait list. You know, we're, we haven't even gone to, to the waiver status yet, but the services that we're supposed to be getting, we're not getting because like you said, he, at the time before, you know, he turned 18, he, he didn't have Medicaid because he, it was a private adoption. And it's such a limbo. People don't realize you're in such a limbo. You need these services, but yet it was a private adoption. So you're not eligible. And, and, and that's a struggle I hear from many parents. Yeah. And that, that's really, you know, we have, when families come to us and they have Medicaid, it's, it's kind of an easy one for us, right? Cause we can, we can, we have our providers that we know are good and we can get them going and kind of a, a, a warm handoff into those services and they're good. But when we have families with private insurance, you're, you're treading water. Like I said, you're, you're such a blessing and I love the story. I love your story and I love amazing grace advocacy. So we, we have a lot of hope infused in our conversation today, hard, but also hope before you share your contact information and, and your website information, I like to end our episodes on what I call a hope takeaway, which are, which are words of hope that can give our listeners hope, especially in their FASD journey and their 
parenting heart in hard places journey. You have so much experience. You have so much inspiration, yet you're still on this journey every day. What can you share with parents out there who either are just learning or just starting down this road or don't know where, where to go next? So I, I think that through this whole experience, I am knee deep in it now still. You know, a lot of people will say, how are you still upright? Or how do you even continue on? And it's God. And I, and I will tell you that I don't know how families or parents get through this if they don't have God. Because oftentimes everybody runs for the hills in your life in these situations. Um, even church, some families, like we've, we've had it happen, you know, where you think is your safe place, where you think that can fall apart because we're human beings. But one constant that is always there is God. And you and I have both expressed today that we're not perfect. I have, I have been ugly. I have not handled this with grace at times. But God has always shown me amazing grace. And that's why we picked that name. Because no matter what, we keep going. You can't quit. You just can't. It's your kids. God never gives up on us. And that unconditional love, um, agape love is, is what I compare it to, that we have with the father. That same love is how we feel towards our children, whether they're adopted or not. And that is what parents have to stay focused on. Don't focus so much on the situation, the behaviors, the meltdowns, the hole that might be in your bedroom wall because a kiddo came in and <laughs> pushed, punched a hole because they were mad at you. Don't stay focused on those things. Stay focused on God is working. God will get me through this. Remain faithful and know that you're not alone and reach out to other families that are going through this because we, we get it. I always say like when, when we have these meetings or conferences like you and I were at, we, it's like walking onto a new planet and everybody speaks your language. And there's, there is hope in that. There's a lot of hope in that. And I have been inspired by people that have gone before me and, you know, have 30 year olds that said, you'll get through this and it gets better. So I hope that having shared all this will give other families that hope, that encouragement, and just keep going, just keep going. You can do it. <laughs> Yes. I love that. Oh my goodness. I love, I love hearing that one. Wow. I am just so thankful. Again, I, I keep saying this, but I'm just so thankful for who you are, your family and how you're serving the Lord in, in amazing grace advocacy. I'm just blessed. And I don't believe we, I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe we met by accident. I believe, like you said, God made the connection because he knew we needed to support one another. So that is awesome. So before we wrap up, how can folks get in touch with you and learn more about Amazing Grace Advocacy? So the easiest way is really through our website. So simply you can Google Amazing Grace Advocacy and it'll, it'll pop up. Um, but it is www.amazinggraceadvocacy.org. We have a Facebook presence. We are on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not that tech savvy that I update those other ones, but Facebook, we pretty much is our main, and we find that most parents are connected on that. So just, you know, in your search, put Amazing Grace Advocacy, and it, it will pop up. Um, our website, though, does have an area that you can connect with us, and you just, it's a little form, you put your name, your email, and it'll send, that message is um, always directed to me. So again, we help families across the entire United States um, in terms of support. We can't always, you know, although now with Zoom, we can get into a lot of IEP meetings and all different kinds of things. We do offer that um, individualized case management for families that are really in tough situations. But there is all kinds of information on our website about programs and things that you, webinars, things like that, that you can get more information. Go visit 
amazing grace advocacy website, so many resources that you provide and so many gaps in services that you are filling that, that amazing grace is filling. And again, just so blessed. And I pray that so many people can hear this and, and just be blessed by the, the resources and by, by what you're doing. One, we will definitely have you back on FASD hope um, later on this year, because I am just so excited to see what you're doing and, and how you're providing for the community. Thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. Thank you. We will catch you next time. Take care. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.